Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Oh, my prayer today, and it has been throughout this week, is that you would experience the love of God the Father for you in His Son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's my desire for you. And can I just say, that's God's desire for you? Uh, the one who made you, the one who created you, the one who knows you best, his desire is exactly that in your life. And so my, my prayer is that by the time we're done this morning, you might have a renewed sense of the reality of that for yourself. Uh, we have been doing this journey. We have now been going on for 15 weeks through this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, all the previous messages are online if you have any interest at all in them. Uh, but we are moving on today into the final section of Jesus' famous message. Somebody has said this, Jesus, or it is the greatest message ever preached by the greatest person who has ever lived. And because it is so great, it obviously follows all the rules, if you will, of what makes for a very profound and powerful presentation. And so what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is, is basically it has an introduction. All good messages have an introduction. It's an opportunity for the speaker to identify with the people that they're speaking to in an identifying to draw them in. Jesus does that with the Beatitudes. So he has this magnificent introduction that ultimately gives way to the body of what he wants to say. And that is where the instruction for what the good life is about in the interior of the good life, how it is realized through these secret habits of the heart with us and God the Father through giving and praying and fasting. And then he actually does this, this section on challenging us, inspiring us. Do you really know the Father? Have you really embraced the Son? As he talks about the question of loyalty, where do your loyalties lie? The question of trust, who are you really trusting? Is it yourself for fear or God in faith? And then the question of mission, whose kingdom are you busy building? Yours or God's? And so he has gone through this in a very thoughtful manner. And all good messages begin with an introduction, have a body, and they conclude with a, a conclusion. Very good. Yes, yes, I kind of gave it away. It concludes with a conclusion. Yes. So any good message, any good speech, any good presentation has these elements. And so Jesus, after walking through this speech, this message, this proclamation, it cannot be done until he actually brings it to bear on the hearts of the hearers and elicits a response from them. And that is the section we are in beginning this week and through the rest of the month of August, kind of an elongated sense of response. But today, we're going to look at the beginning of these responses that Jesus Christ is eliciting from the hearers. So today, as we consider the good life and the conclusion to the good life, Jesus is encouraging us to consider this. He wants for us to choose life and not to choose death. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. If you have your Bibles, I do want to encourage you to open them up. You may want to write some things in the margin, circle some particular words, or highlight something so that you can go back to it and remember it. 
But this is what Jesus says at the end of this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want you to enter by the narrow gate. The so what of my message is, I want you to enter by the narrow gate. The, and this is what you need to do is, I want you to enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to what? Eternal destruction. And those who enter by it are how many? That's right. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to what? And those who find it are what? My prayer this week has been that we would be the few. Those who really get it. Those who really know what it means to enter into life. Life in Christ. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to dissect this unique little imagery that Christ gives us of a gate and a way. Father, thank you uh, for the privilege to gather uh, in your name. I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you for your love gift to us. I thank you for his perfect life and obedience. I thank you for his perfect death and resurrection. I thank you for Jesus. And Father, I also thank you for the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God who comes in among us and speaks to us and convicts us and draws us out and transforms us. My prayer, Father, is that your Spirit would have great liberty in our midst during these next few minutes and that your will would be done. I pray this in Jesus' name and for your sake, Father. Amen. Amen. So what we have here from Jesus is, is a very powerful call of response from the hearers. Um, again, this message that Jesus was proclaiming probably only took somewhere in the order of 16, 17, 18 minutes to present. That's all. Now, we've spent 16 weeks presenting what he took 16 minutes to say, but hey, that's what preaching does. Uh, that's what we do, uh, is we do that. Uh, so at the conclusion of the speech, Jesus is basically issuing a command. A command for a response from the hearers. I like what one person said. They said this, Jesus began his sermon with unqualified tenderness, embracing in the Beatitudes those who felt the least embraceable. And he basically said this, blessed are you or happier you if you are poor. Blessed are you, happier you if you mourn or grieve. Blessed are you or happier if you are meek and lowly. And he goes on like that. So he's spreading his arms really wide, and he's doing his best to embrace as many people as he can through this promise of blessing. But this writer goes on to say this. He now concludes, however, with an absolutely unqualified toughness, a warning to us that his sermon is not merely an intellectual option or a set of suggestions that we can take or leave, or just one philosophy among others, but that it is the exclusive way to life. There is no other way. This is the only way. And his desire is that we enter by the narrow gate. That is actually a command. In the original language, it is an imperative, which is a verb of command. He is saying, enter it at the narrow gate. Enter it in. Jump in. Come on, let's go. And what he is basically saying is this. I want you to choose life, and I don't want you to continue on the path 
that will lead to your own ultimate destruction. I want you to choose life and don't remain on the path that will eventuate in your own destruction. Now, Jesus is standing in the time-honored tradition of the servants of God who have taken the word of God and challenged people to turn from their sin and their self unto the living God. Moses, many, many years ago, proclaiming to the nation of Israel, put it this way, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life. That was a proclamation of Moses many, many years before Jesus to the people of God. And then later, Jeremiah the prophet put it this way. God used the prophet to say this, and to this people I want you to say, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. And so... Jesus comes on the scene. He begins his earthly ministry. He makes this proclamation of a 17-minute speech, and he does exactly what the prophets of old did. He calls people to life and to turn away from death and experience eternal existence with God. And you know, because it's been preserved for us, This is not merely a historical analysis of what Jesus said 2,000 years ago to a group of people on a hillside. Because we have it today, and we have the Holy Spirit today, what Jesus is saying so many years ago, he's actually saying to us today. His desire is that everyone right now, under the hearing of his voice, the word of God, that we would indeed Choose life and not death. So let's enter into this rather unusual illustration and kind of unpack a little bit of what I think he means. Jesus says, I command you, I demand that you enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to ultimate destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are relatively few in light of the many. But what he is saying here, this actually can be translated and said, instead of, for the gate is narrow, it can actually be translated from the original language. What Jesus maybe would have said is something like this. Oh, how narrow is the gate. It's an exclamation. It, 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 it is basically uh, stating, oh my gosh, how narrow, how restrictive, how hard it is to actually find the way that leads to life. And again, Jesus is contrasting the two here. And so in a very real way, this is what Jesus is saying. We all begin here. From the moment of our birth, the moment we get out of the womb, we start running in our own direction. The Bible says that we are sinners. And so from the moment of birth, we start on this journey, this this road. And it's the road of me, the road of self. It's the road of all about my independence and getting what I want and doing what I desire. It's, It's my way, the highway that I walk on. 
And the Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, to a woman, but it ends in death. And so we all begin the journey on this road. And what Jesus is saying, by contrast, is this. This road is so obvious, so plain, and so heavily traveled that we all walk on it, that this way is actually obscured from our view. It's almost impossible for us actually to find the path that leads to life. In a very real way, what Jesus is saying is this. You don't just happen upon the way of life and say, Oh, look, I'm saved. How did that happen? I'm, I, I got life. How did that happen? It doesn't happen that way. In fact, this way is so obscured. It is so hard to find that this gate is impossible for us to find on our own. Seriously. This is what the Bible says. The way of life, the gate of life, is something that we cannot find on our own. Why? Because the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe or embrace Christ to keep them from indeed seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So Satan is actively suppressing people's ability to behold Christ. No, you don't want to go over there. You want your own way. No, you don't want to go over there. You want your own life. No, you don't want to go over there. Because it's all about you, right? That, that's, that's our life. That's our world. That's our nature. And so any thought of going over to this narrow gate in this narrow way, that's not even in our minds. We don't even think like that. In fact, the Bible makes it pretty plain. We can't think like that. Because the Bible goes on to say in Ephesians 2.1 that we're actually dead. And our trespasses and in our sins. We're actually dead in relationship to God. There is no innate desire in us for God. In and of ourselves, we do not seek God. Uh, Paul put it pretty plainly in Romans chapter 3 when he said this. There's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even that's right. So we are, by nature, and because of the active work of Satan, the narrow gate, which leads to the narrow way, which leads to life, is something beyond our purview. We cannot find it. We are blind, and we cannot find it. The only way this gate can be found, the only way this gate can be seen, is if the Father draws your heart to find it and helps you to see it. Jesus said it this way. He said, no one, how many? How many can come to me unless the Father who sent me actively draws them to me? So again, because of our deadness in relationship to God, because of the active blindingness of Satan and the reality of the world we live in, it's all about me, right? It's all about you. Live your own life. Do whatever you like. Let's all vote libertarian this time. Well, that's what we think. Everybody deserves the right to live their own life, and that's how we live. But that is the way of death. 
And the only way you start to think differently is if your heart is being drawn, being pulled over to a unique other way. It is so hard to see, so hard to find, but it is the only way that leads to life. God uses his Holy Spirit to do this work in our lives. Jesus said in John 16 and verse 8, And he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, our sinfulness, and righteousness, God's righteousness and his demands upon us, and ultimate judgment that we deserve. And so this is the work of God. This gate is small. Its opening is obscured. It is ultimately obtuse to our vision. It's restrictive. It's constricting. And apart from God, there is no way we will ever even find the gate. This gate is impossible to find on your own. And that's why it has been my prayer throughout this week. As I've been preparing this message, I realize that while I'm speaking, speaking truth, I can't make anybody get saved. I can't make anybody understand this. I can't make this reasonable, even logical to anyone here, let alone touch the heart. This is a work of God. And so my prayer has been, oh God, please do a work beyond my words. Please do a work of, of drawing people to your son. Spirit of God, do your work of convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. It's, it's my prayer that what Jesus Christ commands us, enter by the narrow gate, the command of Jesus, the Son of God, that his command will become his enablement in your life. And that perhaps today, maybe for the first time, you'll understand what this gate is and where it actually leads and what it takes to step through. That's my prayer for you. I hope, I hope God will honor that. May God honor that. So again, this gate is impossible to find on your own. It takes the enablement of God the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit to even reveal this gate to you. But secondly, what I want you to notice about how, oh, how narrow is this gate. Oh, how narrow is this gate. How, how restricting this gate seems. How, how, how absolutely tiny and small and narrow this way seems is this. This gate is the only gate that leads to life. It's the only gate that leads to life. Let me describe this gate for you. Uh, this gate was actually designed in eternity past. This gate was actually constructed uh, out of 33 years of absolute pure obedience this gate is actually made out of two large wooden pieces held together by Roman nails painted red with none other than the blood of the Lamb of God. This is the only gate that will lead to life, and it is the gate of the death of the Son of God. This is the only way. This is the only way anyone will ever enter into eternal life and bliss. 
You know, right now, there's something inside of all of us that kind of bristles at this. You know, what about the hundreds of millions of really good people who just happen to be secular? What about the one billion followers of Muhammad? Talk about very dedicated religious people. What about the one billion plus followers who would fall into the area of Hinduism or Confucius' uh, Confucius's teaching or, or Shintoism? What about the billions and billions of people who don't know this way? You see, in our minds, we think, well, you know, um, somehow, some way, they all have an equally valid point of entry into bliss, uh, paradise, uh, nirvana, uh, heaven. In our way of thinking, it just doesn't seem right that it can be this exclusive, that there's really only one way. And yet, I want you to hear again the words of Jesus. I am what? It is the gate. Not a gate. Anyone who enters by me will be saved. Jesus went on to say this. I am what? I am the, I am the, every one of those is the definite article. Every single one of those is the definite article. No one, how many? How many? Comes to the Father but by me. Absolute exclusivity is what Jesus Christ is saying. And again, I think internally we all kind of bristle with this. That just doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. How can there just be one way when there's so many other people proclaiming other ways? Well, all I know to say is this. I didn't make this way. I'm just proclaiming this way. If it were up to me, I would love everybody to be able to have their own way. But it doesn't work like that. God is the one who inhabits heaven. God is the one who's been offended. He is the one who gets to determine the way in which we come to him. We can't come our own way. So that God is the one who determined this, not me. But in determining this, in determining this, what God has done is he has set up Jesus Christ as absolutely unique amongst all the great leaders of the religions of the world. Jesus is unlike Muhammad. Jesus is unlike Buddha. Jesus is unlike Confucius. Jesus is unlike any other savior that any other religion would push forward. Because it was only Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ, who is the one who can deal with the issue that lies between God and man. Only Jesus Christ is the one who can do this. Why? Because he is the only one who is God the second person of the Trinity, who didn't just enter into our situation or come into our world, but he literally put our skin on through the womb of the Virgin Mary and the incarnation. He is the God, man, absolutely perfect. So he went on to live an absolutely perfect life of obedience before the Father, the very life we were called to live. I don't know if you can find any other religion that would admit their leader was perfect, but Jesus is. He's absolutely unique. He is the God-man. Nobody else is the God-man. Only Jesus Christ is. And because he could live a perfect life, he then could die the death that we deserve to die in our place to take the penalty of our sin upon him, and God the Father could crush him in our place. Nobody else can do that. 
there's only one gate because there was only one person who could be, and I love the way Paul puts it, there is really only one God, and there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for how many? He died for all, and he is the only way into life and life eternal. This gate is oh so narrow. Oh so narrow. There's not a multiplicity of ways. Again, C.S. Lewis, I love Lewis. One of these days he and I are going to sit down on a rock together and spend an eternity just talking about Jesus. He said this, there's only one road that leads home. But how many other roads lead into the wilderness? That's right. Every other path leads away from God. Every other path is by man's effort. Every other path is about how good I can be. There's only one way to God, and that is through this gate, and this gate is Jesus. Now, having said all of that, I, I need to say this. You know, it, it is not enough. It is not enough to simply find the gate. Oh, look, we found it by God's enablement. It's not simply enough to find the gate that leads to life or even to discuss why this is the only gate that can lead to life. We can talk about this gate all day long. There's so much that could be said. But that's not what Jesus said to do. What did Jesus say to do? That's right. Now that you've found it, I've shown it to you. Now that you understand that I'm that gate, now it is incumbent upon you to enter into the gate. Too many people have found the gate and have spent their whole lives analyzing it, but they've never actually entered into it. And this is where something called repentance and faith come into the story about our lives. This is where we need to be moving next. You see, the gate is impossible to find on your own. The Father has to reveal it to you. The gate is the only gate that leads to life, and it's Jesus Christ and Him alone. But thirdly, you can only enter this gate with empty hands. It is so narrow. It is so restrictive. It is so constricting. You cannot enter into this gate with all your stuff all your plans, all your desires, all your longings, all your whatever. Jesus doesn't leave us any room to bring our junk with us. That's how he designed this gate. You know, um, Jesus actually gave us a story uh, in uh, Luke chapter uh, 18 that goes like this. I read this this week, and it just smote me. It just, it just laid me out. Listen to this opening statement. Jesus spoke this story, this parable, listen, to some who trusted in themselves that they were good. And they treated others with contempt. Why? Because they're better than other people. This is what he said. Two men went up to a temple to pray. One of them happened to be a Pharisee. The other was a tax collector, notorious sinner. Uh, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I just thank you. Notice, I'm thanking God. I thank you that I'm not like other men. <laughs> they're extortioners. They're unjust. They're adulterers. They're, they're even like this tax collector. 
do. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. God, you're sure lucky to have somebody as good as me on your side. God, look at all the good things I do. Notice what this guy is bringing to God. He's bringing all his righteousnesses, all his good works, because he's good. But Jesus goes on with the story. But the tax collector, standing afar off, it says he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. It says, but he beat his breast, saying, God, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus goes on to say this, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, went down to his house justified, declared righteous before God, rather than the other. For everyone who chooses to exalt himself will be humbled eternally, I believe. But everyone who's willing to humble themselves will ultimately be exalted eternally, I believe. So in coming to this very tight, very narrow, very constricting, very restricting gate, you cannot take your stuff with you. You have to repent. You have to turn from all of your goodness, all of your good deeds. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount, whether you've realized it or not, has actually been actively deconstructing your good deeds. It has actively been telling you that, guess what? You're more like that publican and sinner than you are like that Pharisee. You're not really good. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, John MacArthur, good old John MacArthur, said this about the Sermon on the Mount. He goes, everything Jesus had spoken on this occasion was spoken publicly to the multitudes. His intention was to drive them to a recognition of their sinfulness and thus their need of Jesus, which he came to be their Savior. Until they believe in him, the demands of the sermon could only show them how terribly far they are from meeting God's standards. This masterful evangelistic sermon is designed to confront men and women with their uh, desperate need in their condition of sinfulness. Listen to how Jesus did this. It's so smart. It's so masterful. He has slowly but surely been sticking it to us the whole time, and most of us haven't even noticed. You know, we think we're pretty good people. Yeah, I, don't, I don't kill anybody. I'm pretty good. Oh, really? Uh, Jesus said this. You have heard that it was said of those of old that you shall not murder. And whoever murders is liable of the judgment. Jesus goes on to say this, but I want to say that to you that everyone who gets angry with his brother is liable of eternal judgment. No way. Yahweh. Yahweh. Yeah, 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 yes. Yeah. You see what he just did? Ah. Ow. That hurt my self-righteousness, Jesus. Yeah, that's the point. <laughs> that's the point. I'm sorry. This is really getting bad. But, but, but it's not like I'm, I'm, I'm some kind of pervert or something. Oh, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ugh. Mm. Ow! That hurt my good deeds. That hurt my, my self-respect. That hurt my self-worth. Jesus, that hurts my self-righteousness. Stop it. But he keeps on going. And, 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 you know, not only our, our sense of self-respect or our sense of good deeds or our self-righteousness or our good works, but he actually kind of sticks our pride. He slays our pride. Listen to what he said. You have heard that it was said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the evil one. 
What do you mean? What do you mean? I gotta stand up for myself, I gotta stand up for my rights, I gotta be, I gotta defend myself? Really? He goes on to say this You have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I want to say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What? What? That's ridiculous, Jesus. That's right. Absolutely ridiculous. Because we, by nature, want to prove ourselves to be good and worthy of God's attention and worthy of, of this thing called eternal life. Oh, God, you are sure lucky you got me in this whole deal. You don't understand. You don't understand. Here, let me just finish you. Let me just stab you and kill you. Jesus will actually... You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, how's your self-righteousness feeling right now? How's your good deeds feeling right now? You see, this is only part of the story. Not only does he absolutely slay our sense of self-righteousness, our good deeds, that we're somehow very moral and capable people that God obviously blesses because we're good, Actually, he's showing us that we're not good, that we're actually sinners in need of a Savior. But he's not done here. You're like, what more could he say? This is about as bad as it gets. No, trust me, it gets worse. Jesus goes on to say, not only do you need to repent of your sin, but you actually need to understand that you must now put him first in your affections. You see, up till now we've dealt with ourselves. But now we're turning to one who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the all-glorious one from eternity past to eternity future. He is Lord. And so when you turn from yourself and you behold him, you don't come in with your own agenda. You don't come in with your own affections. He demands absolute exclusivity of affections and agenda. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Make your choice. Well, which one are you going to choose? Your money, the thing that you really love? Come on, come on, be honest. You work really hard for this because you can have everything you want in life, right? That's, no, you've you got to make a choice here. It's one or the other. Either exclusive affections for Jesus or you're going to keep whatever it is you're, you're holding on to. But you can't have both. In fact, Jesus one day had a guy come up to him. We call him the rich young ruler. He came up to Jesus and said, you know, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus kind of says, well, why do you call me good? But that's another part of the story. Uh, and then he basically said, how do the commandments speak? And so he enumerates a number of the commandments, the Ten Commandments. And he says, you know, I've kept all of these from my youth up. Jesus said, wonderful, there's one thing you lack. He goes, now I want you to sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Hmm. I wonder how he will respond with this, you cannot serve God or money. Notice what it goes on to say. And when the young man heard this, he went away, what? For he had great, and Jesus said to his disciples, don't miss this. Truly I say to you, only with great difficulty. How narrow, how constricting, how restricting is this gate? Will a rich person enter into the kingdom of heaven? Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He made his choice. You see, he could have turned from his sin, but he refused to let go of his affection for money and put it exclusively on Jesus. 
You see, repentance is sin and self pushed back and beholding Jesus with supreme affection. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, it's not just a stuff in your life, but it can even be a relationship in your life. Notice what he goes on to say this. If you want to be my disciple, you must what? What? You must what? <laughs> you know, you got to all say, come on. You must everyone else by comparison. What? Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my follower. Absolutely. You see, he's calling for absolute exclusivity of affection because of who he is. He has that right. And then, not only that, but he actually goes on to say that not only do I want your affections, but I demand your agenda. Notice what he says here. And he said, follow me to this man. But the man said back to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, no. <laughs> Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, I want you to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said to him, you know, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at home. I've got my plans. I've got this agenda, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what? What? No. No. It doesn't work like that. I'm sorry. No one can put their hand to the plow and look back and still be fit for the kingdom of God. So Jesus is calling for an exclusivity of affections and agendas even our own lives. And then Jesus told his disciples, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life must lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Um, for what is it profit, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is bringing us to an absolute end of ourselves. You can't approach me with all your pious words and your good deeds and your moral living. That won't work. We've already determined that we're all murderers and adulterers. And you know what? You can't come with a fistful of plans that you want Jesus to sanctify for you. You've got to let those go too because he has a plan for your life and it's probably not the plan you have for your life. He has an affection that he wants you to have, and that affection is him. <sighs> Remember I told you as we began our time together that it is God who has to do a work in our hearts, in our lives, if we're ever going to behold the gate, and if we're ever going to understand what this gate is. Well, it is very much the operation of God to enable us to enter into this gate as well. You see, what we're talking about is not merely a cognitive choice on our part. But in reality, God the Father is placing us in us a longing for the person of his Son. God is drawing us to the beauty of Jesus and gives us a longing for him an affection for him so great that we are, a willing, we are willing to abandon our very lives for him. I can't make you do that. I can't demand you do that. That is a work that God does in our hearts. One day Jesus went to a guy and he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He was the greatest teacher in all of Israel. And he said, I have no idea what you're talking about. 
He said, listen, the wind blows where it wants, and then it blows away. So it is with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God blows in, changes the heart and the life, and blows out. We have no idea how it really happened other than the fact that God did it in a very real way right now as we talk about entering into this gate. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Intellectually, I can challenge you with these truths, but it doesn't really happen until it hits your heart. It doesn't actually happen until you get to that point in your heart where you're saying, I don't want to follow my own life. I want Jesus. He is my treasure. He is the truth. He is the life I long for. That's what it means to be saved. I am so tired of having the discussion, do you think they're saved? Why should that discussion ever come up? If you love something, it's pretty hard to not be obvious about that. But we take Jesus and we put him over here and we live our own lives. And the question is, do, do, do you think they're saved? Probably not. They're still journeying down the broad road. They're still living their own lives. They're still doing their own things. Every once in a while they give a tip of the hat to God. But it's when Jesus becomes your life. And that doesn't happen through a preacher talking at you. That happens when the Holy Spirit brings it home to your heart. This is an experiential quality that I can't just challenge your intellect with. One of the greatest minds ever made by God who lived in the United States was a marvelous man of God by the name of Jonathan, um, Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards said this, there is a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious and actually having a new sense on the heart of that loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. Follow me. There is a difference. The difference between believing that God is gracious and actually tasting that God is gracious. It is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet instead of the actual sense of tasting the honey and knowing by experience that it is beautiful. I can't make you get this. But I have been asking God all week to bring this truth home to our hearts. I can only hope I can only hope that the command of Christ to enter in is sufficient to fulfill that work of God in your heart. Because this is purely the work of God. Somebody has said this, and I think it's just so true. The operation of God is not where he makes bad men good and good men better, but it's where he makes dead men alive. That doesn't happen because I think it happens. It happens when the Spirit of God touches my heart and yes, my head, and they come together in an all-consuming desire for Christ. Him. Him alone. He is life. He is the gate. Repent. Turn from your sin and self. And as the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. That's where life is given. 
my concern, and I'm going to talk about this next week, my concern in the way that America has done evangelism over the years is we have preached a half or false gospel largely, and in the process, given millions of people assurance that they're good to go, even though they haven't got Christ in their heart. That is a great concern of mine. And it's one that I don't want to be an error of here. You see, friends, this gate is impossible to find on your own. It is a work of God to even reveal this gate to you. This gate is really the only gate that will lead to life. There's only one way, and his name is Jesus. And you can only enter this gate empty-handed, repenting of ourself and our sins and turning and finding in Jesus Christ the beautiful, lovely, glorious Savior of our souls and the Lord of our lives. That's what it means to be saved. Salvation is where Jesus, by repentance and faith, becomes our life. Salvation is where Jesus, by repentance and faith in the grace of God, is our treasure. Salvation is where Jesus, by repentance and faith in the grace of God, becomes our great affection. Salvation is where Jesus, by repentance and faith in the grace of God, is that, what, is that which we truly, truly love. That's what it means to be saved. Jesus calls us for an exclusivity of life, calls for an exclusivity of life and affection. And if we embrace him by faith, we will experience life. Life. Now, I'm going to just uh, give you one last statement on this, and then we're going to move in and have our... Uh, time of communion, we're actually going to turn our, community into an op our communion into an opportunity to actually express our repentance and faith in Christ. But I just have to say this, uh, the gate is impossible to find your own, the gate is the only gate that leads to life, the gate can only, uh, you can only enter this gate empty-handed, but this just seems so stupidly obvious, I have to say it, and yet it's something that we never talk about. You, are you curious? Okay, here we go. The narrow gate leads to bingo. You see, to embrace Jesus with your life by, by repentance and faith actually leads now to a life of repentance and faith of following Jesus through the remainder of your life. That's what it means to know him, is that you love him and you follow him not to be saved, but because you are saved by simple repentance and faith. He is now worthy of, of all your life. You know, I, I'm not sure exactly how we got there, but for some reason we have managed to divorce justification by faith alone, by the grace of God alone, and sanctification by the grace of God by faith alone. As though somehow you're just in, I'm in, I'm good. Well, no, you're actually in to now walk with him, to now live out his design and plans for your life, for the glory of God and his kingdom, not your own. This is what it means to be saved. It is embracing Christ entering through the gate, and the gate naturally leads to the narrow way. Naturally leads to the narrow way. Uh, so Jesus uh, would often call people to himself, and then in calling people to himself, he would say, okay, this is the gate, now step through. And stepping through that gate now opened up to the narrow way. Follow me, follow me. 
In fact, Jesus on one occasion, uh, Matthew chapter 11 said this, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, we like that. But every time Jesus would say something like that, he would always say what? Follow me. Okay, good, now follow me. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Yes, over and over and over again. Um, I just wanna say, uh, that's a cool picture. Uh, how do I know? Because I took it two weeks ago. My family and I were in the White Mountains of, of New Hampshire, and we chose to uh, journey up a mountain. Uh, to, it's called Black Cap Mountain outside of North Conway, New Hampshire. Uh, it's only about a mile, but it is one of the most rugged miles you will ever walk in your life. And so we, we started this journey, and, and we were going through all of this mess. It was steep. It was hard. We actually get up to the top. It's, it's basically solid granite. And you're kind of leaning uphill hoping you don't slip back and fall. Um, on the journey, I ended up cutting my leg pretty good. We actually lost Elisha for a while, but that's another whole story. Um, um, and so, so it was an arduous journey. And you're like, you were on vacation. Why would you do that? Because we were looking for the view. You see, the hard journey leads to an impossible view. And as we journeyed to the top of this mountain, we actually got up there, and there we is. And I want you to notice the view. In fact, I want you to notice the view. These are actually the green mountains of New Hampshire. And at the top of Blacktop Mountain, you can basically get a 360-degree view of all the mountains that surround. Absolutely stunning, absolutely beautiful. Uh, it was a joy to go on that journey. It's so like the journey Christ calls us on. You're going to get cut. You're going to bleed. Your legs are going to get tired. You're going to lose people along the way and hopefully find them again. But, but the journey to the top is because there's a view. There's something outstanding there that you wouldn't get without the journey. And this is what Jesus holds out to all of us. I am the gate. I am also the way. You step through the gate, you're now on the way. And he will lead you to a vista that you will never ultimately believe you could ever behold. But it's not an easy journey. I like what uh, Keller said. This, the real Jesus requires more than you ever thought, but he offers more than you ever imagined. Jesus says, I lay before you today life and death. I command you to choose life and not death. Today, if you will, I am what C.S. Lewis spoke about so many years ago when he said this. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without a sudden turning, without a milestone, and without a signpost. I'm your signpost. Don't go to hell. Repent and believe and be prepared for the journey because Jesus wants you to follow him. And that's something that God alone can do in your heart. I'm going to invite those to uh, serve to come on up. Uh, we're going to partake of communion. And in so doing, what we're going to do is uh, we are going to use this moment uh, to kind of focus our thoughts on what we've been talking about and I want you, where you're sitting, to do business with God. The Spirit of God is working on you. I want you to hear his voice. I want you to respond. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is near. It's right here. It's right next to you. 
Repent of your sins and believe the good news. What is that good news? Let me use this audio visual reminder of what the good news is, and then we will partake together. 